the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James, though far, far away, is technically the producer. Well, today we're going to cover some of the news we weren't able to cover on Thursday and certainly today, and we will shift later in the program to the lighter side of the news, but there are a lot of really important developing stories, and we want to bring you up to date on them. Well, documents filed with the Supreme Court and unsealed on Wednesday revealed definitely and for the first time that Special Counsel Robert Mueller is the party seeking a grand jury subpoena and subsequent contempt citation against an unnamed government-controlled foreign corporation that's resisted prosecutors' efforts at every turn. Proceedings are believed to be linked to attempts by Mueller's team to secure information to present to an an impaneled grand jury in the special counsel's Russia investigation. And New Mexico is the latest to embrace carbon-free electricity, passing a bill that will require all electricity from public utilities to come from carbon-free sources. California, Hawaii, and D.C. have already instituted carbon-free requirements. The incremental mandate in New Mexico requires the state, now one of the country's top oil, gas, and coal producers, to get 50% of its energy from renewables by 2030 and 80% by 2040. By 2045, it must go entirely carbon-free. On the upside, the scheme presumably incorporates nuclear power. And President Trump's nominee to fill the vacancy on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, uh, left by uh, now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, was confirmed by the Senate on Wednesday, 53 to 46. The vote to confirm Naomi Rao to the appellate court was entirely along party lines, with Senator Patty Murray not voting. Rao came under fire from liberal activists seeking to derail her nomination to the court by attacking pieces she wrote in college that criticized irresponsible drinking and called race a hot money-making issue. Translation, she was targeted for speech. And the parents of 11-year-old Desmond Napolese, a so-called drag kid known as Desmond the Amazing, has been investigating by authorities for alleged child abuse, according to the Daily Wire. Desmond, dressed in full drag, danced in a sexually suggestive manner on stage at a New York City-based uh, gay bar called $3 Bill. As Desmond, again the 11-year-old, took off his jacket, howling men in the audience handed him dollar bills, as one might see at a strip club. Well, amazingly, though, the boy's mother said in a post that authorities have claimed the abuse allegations are unfounded. She evidenced this with screenshots of such uh, determinations via social media. Simply inexcusable. Well, one person has been charged in connection with a well-planned terrorist attack that was streamed online live that killed 49 people and injured dozens more in two mosques in New Zealand today. The New Zealand police said four people, three men and one woman, were in custody in connection with the attack. Investigators later diffused a number of improvised explosive devices that were found inside vehicles. Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern described the suspect as one 
uh, principal, two associates, and one person not directly connected to the attacks. She said the suspects were not on any security watch list. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison confirmed that one of the detainees was a 28-year-old white Australian-born citizen. He described the suspect as an extremist, right-wing, violent terrorist. More on that in a bit. No motive has been determined. However, a man who claimed responsibility for the shootings described anti-immigrant views in a manifesto. Investigators did not rule out that more suspects could be involved. Police were also working to remove an unconfirmed video that circulated online showing a suspect entering a building and firing multiple shots at people inside. That has since been confirmed to be that individual who has been charged. And President Trump issued his first ever veto today after Senate Democrats joined by 12 Republicans voted to block his declaration of a national emergency at the U.S.-Mexico border. The president made his intentions crystal clear, tweeting VETO in all caps. Moments after the resolution against the plan passed on Thursday, the vote was 59-41, despite White House efforts to keep the GOP united on the issue of border security. The objection was on the executive authority rather than the border uh, wall and funding called for. The University of Southern California, Yale, and several other elite colleges are being sued by multiple student and graduates who claim they were denied a fair opportunity for admission and have had their degrees devalued due to a college cheating scheme detailed by federal officials earlier this week. The University of San Diego, the University of Texas at Austin, Wake Forest, Georgetown, Stanford, Yale, and USC, along with William Rick Singer, who was called the ringleader of the admissions scheme, were also named as defendants. The plaintiffs claimed they weren't given a fair opportunity to be accepted into the elite colleges where they'd applied because some people were allegedly admitting based on fake athletic profiles and distorted SAT and ACT scores obtained through bribes. Meanwhile, in wake of the charges uh, she faces in the college admissions scandal, actress Lori Laughlin was dropped by the Hallmark Channel, a representative confirmed. Though he initially said he wasn't going to make a presidential run, former U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke reversed that decision, announcing his candidacy in the wee hours of Thursday morning. The excitement among some of his supporters, primarily media, was palpable in the Democrats' hometown of El Paso, Texas. Though some say O'Rourke's candidacy raises exciting excitement rather among Texas uh, Politics. Professor Todd Curry from the University of Texas at El Paso is wary of notions that the candidate could flip this state red. I still think we have to wait a few more election cycles until Texas is put into play, Mr. Curry says. O'Rourke is set to hold a kickoff and did uh, on in El Paso on March the 30th. The Justice Department negotiated an agreement with Hillary Clinton's legal team that ensured the FBI did not have access to emails on her private server relating to the Clinton Foundation. Former FBI Special Agent Peter Strzok testified during a closed-door appearance before the House Judiciary Committee last summer. According to a newly released transcript, Strzok acknowledged that Clinton's private personal email server contained a mixture of emails related to the Clinton Foundation, her work as Secretary of State, and other matters. Republicans uh, late last year renewed their efforts to probe the Clinton Foundation after tax documents showed a plunge in its incoming donations after Clinton failed her 2016 presidential bid. The numbers fueled longstanding allegations of possible pay-to-play transactions at the organization. 
And the Israeli military early Friday announced it had launched airstrikes on terror sites in Gaza, a retaliatory move after rockets blamed on the militia, rather the militant group Hamas, were fired on Tel Aviv. The strikes occurred roughly 15 miles south of Gaza City, according to the Associated Press. There were no immediate reports of injuries. The Hamas naval base was targeted, the outlet reported, citing Palestinian media. And North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will soon decide whether to continue diplomatic talks and maintain his moratorium on missile launches and nuclear tests, according to a senior North Korean official today, adding that the U.S. threw away a golden opportunity at the recent summit between their leaders. The Associated Press goes on to note that Pyongyang now has no intention of compromising or continuing talks unless the United States takes measures that are commensurate to the changes it has taken, such as the 15-month moratorium on launches and tests and changes its political calculation. Not likely. British lawmakers on Thursday voted to seek an extension to that country's Brexit deadline, throwing further doubt on the UK's impending divorce from the European Union. In a series of votes in another dramatic yet inconclusive week, members of Parliament overwhelmingly voted 412 to 202 for the resolution. The motion directs Prime Minister Theresa May to ask EU leaders for at least three months longer to work out what has become a protracted political mess. May will need all 27 other members of the bloc to agree to extend the March 29th deadline. It's far from certain that this will, in fact, happen. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We are winding our way through news that developed over the last two days. We'll shift to the lighter side of the news in the second hour of today's program. Well, the House on Thursday unanimously passed a bill that would impel Robert Mueller's report to be made public. As it stands, he only needs to report to the Justice Department. Um, the measure was uh, blocked in the Senate by Senate uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who asked that the resolution also include calling for the appointment of a new special counsel to investigate how the Justice Department conducted its investigation. Graham stated, we let Mueller look at all the uh, all things Trump related to collusion and otherwise. Somebody needs to look at what happened on the other side and find out if the FBI and the Department of Justice had two systems. Well, the residents of a makeshift New Mexico compound where 11 emaciated children were found during an August raid were charged by federal authorities Wednesday with terror, kidnapping and firearms offenses. Janie Lavelle, 36, Siraj Wahab, 40, Hiraj Wahaj, 38 and others were charged with federal offenses related to terrorism, kidnapping and firearms violations. The Department of Justice said in a press release in the original indictment, Lavelle was also charged with possessing firearms and ammunition as an alien illegal and unlawfully in the United States. The superseding indictment alleges a conspiracy to stage deadly attacks on American soil. U.S. Attorney John Anderson said in a statement. The discredited anti-hate group Southern Poverty Law Center fired its co-founder and chief litigator Morris Dees for a personal issue that didn't reflect the mission of the organization or its values, according to the Daily Wire, which adds the SPLC said it would bring in an outside organization to conduct a comprehensive assessment of our internal climate and workplace practices to ensure that our talented staff is working in the environment that they deserve, one in which all voices are heard and all staff members are respected in 
end quote. If only the SPLC would show respect for the plethora of legitimate people and organizations it so desperately seeks to destroy, this might have more credibility from my perspective. Well, local and federal authorities are imploring California lawmakers to revise the state's sanctuary policies for another illegal immigrant with a known criminal record was charged in a brutal killing in the Democrat controlled state. Police say Bambi Larson, 59, was stabbed to death in her home February 28th by Carlos Eduardo Arvalo Carzana. 24, an immigrant in the country illegally with a long rap sheet. According to investigators, Carzano, a Salvadoran national, was in the country illegally, had been convicted of more than 10 crimes in the past three years. And on this day in 1998, CBS 60 Minutes airs an interview with former White House employee Kathleen Willey, who says then-President Bill Clinton had made unwelcome advances toward her in the Oval Office in 1993, a charge the president denied. And on this day in 1985, the first Internet domain name, Symbolics.com, is registered by the Symbolics Computer Corporation in Massachusetts. On this day in 1977, the Situation Comedy 3's company, starring John Ritter, Joyce DeWitt, and Suzanne Somers, premieres on ABC TV. And on this day in 1933, Joan Ruth Bader, now known as U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is born in Brooklyn, New York. Well, as mentioned earlier, three people are in custody, one of whom was charged with murder after at least one heavily armed shooter mowed down Muslim worshipers uh, for Friday prayers, massacring 30 uh, rather 49 people, injuring 40 others in two New Zealand mosques while broadcasting a horrific live stream of the terror attack. The 28 year old Australian born citizen was in custody after claiming responsibility for the attacks in Christchurch and allegedly posted a white nationalist manifesto immediately before the murder spree. The man who was not identified was described by Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison as an extremist right wing violent terrorist, and he is expected to appear in court on Saturday. He and three others who were detained, one of which. Um, was later determined not to be tied to the attacks, were not on any watch list, and one was a woman, according to investigators. These are people who I would describe as having extremist views. They have absolutely no place in New Zealand and, in fact, have no place in the world. That's a quote from the prime minister. Uh, this is one of New Zealand's darkest days, uh, the prime minister was quoted as saying, adding that the killings happened in a place where people should have been expressing their religious freedom, where they should have been safe. In addition to the dead, health officials said 48 people were currently being treated in Christchurch Hospital for gunshot wounds. Officials say the patients range from young children to adults and the injuries range from minor to critical. A dozen operating theaters are being used there and some patients will need multiple surgeries, while about 200 family members were at the hospital early Saturday, uh, awaiting news about their loved ones. Keep in mind the time difference. Officials said 41 people uh, were killed at the uh, mosque in Central Christ Church, and seven were slain inside the second mosque, about three miles away. Another person died at a local hospital. One witness who lives next door to one of the two mosques told the Associated Press that he saw a man dressed in black enter the building and then heard dozens of shots, followed by people running from the mosque in terror. I saw dead people everywhere. There were three in the hallway at the door leading to the mosque. People inside the mosque, he said, I don't understand how anyone could do this to these people, to anyone. It's ridiculous. Well, one survivor said that he hid under a bench during the gunfire and prayed the shooter would run out of ammunition. I was just praying to God and hoping, uh, please let this guy stop. Another said the gunman 
uh, was white, was wearing a helmet uh, with some kind of device on top, possibly the camera used to uh, film the assault, giving him a military-type appearance. Another witness cited in a report by News.com uh, said the shooter was silent while carrying out the attack. Well, the video that was apparently live-streamed by the shooter shows the massacre in horrifying detail. The gunman spends more than 10 minutes inside the mosque spraying terrified worshippers with bullets, sometimes refiring at people he has already cut down. In all, there were 17 minutes of violence. At one point, he exits the mosque to rearm before going back inside to shoot more people. Eventually, the man flees as emergency vehicles can be heard approaching in the background. There wasn't even time to aim. There were so many targets, the man says, chillingly as he drives away. Children screaming can be heard in the distance during that attack. The investigation continues again. One man has been charged. And the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder from Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, known commonly as the Black Boxes, have arrived in Paris to be analyzed by BEA, the French Aviation Accident Investigation Agency, at the request of Ethiopian authorities. Evidence at the crash site reported uh, Thursday evening by NBC indicates that the uh, jack screw, which helps control the position of the nose by adjusting the horizontal stabilizer on the tail of the aircraft, was in nosedive position nose down. This is similar to the Lion Air 737 MAX crash in October of last year and provides an important indication that investigators will look into further using the flight recorders. The flight data recorder tracks thousands of parameters, including aircraft uh, pitch, the up or down movement of the nose, roll, acceleration, airspeed, altitude, engine parameters, control inputs, forces, uh, control forces, landing gear, flat positions, caution and warning systems. These parameters are sampled up to about eight times per second, according to a former recorder and electronics investigator and engineer at the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board. FDRs uh, can record data for 100 to 200 hours, resulting in a tremendous amount of data that needs to be analyzed. The information is much more detailed than the flight data that airlines analyze on a regular basis. It's not like downloading a spreadsheet. Interpreting and validating each parameter takes time, so discovering uh, details in this case will take time. The cockpit voice recorder captures sounds from four microphones, one each for the captain and the first officer's headsets, one area microphone to record ambient sounds, and one for the third seat in the cockpit if it is occupied. The area microphone can pick up sounds like the movement of landing gear or flaps that might not be audible on the other microphones. CVRs generally record on a two-hour loop. In the case of the Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, this will encompass not only the entire flight, but may include a portion of the preceding flight. CVR recordings are treated with the utmost professionalism and care, given the sensitive nature of that content. Actual CVR recordings will never be released, only the transcripts. In some countries, the transcripts are redacted, so only the narrow relevant parts are released. And of course, the investigators always have access to the full recordings. Well, the recorders uh, for Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 are visibly damaged, but the CVRs and FDRs, as I've described, are designed to withstand fire, impact, shock, crushing, immersion in water, and penetration from other objects. The crash um, survivable memory unit uh, is really like the iPhone in an OtterBox on steroids, says um, one uh, engineer. If it's damaged, the CSMU can be installed in a working unit to read the information. It's, uh, if it's too damaged for that, uh, manufacturers are required to provide tools to allow recovery of information from the actual chips that have 
uh, have the data inside that device. So there's going to be a great deal of information that we all hope will yield some answers as to whether or not this uh, version of the MAX uh, plane has some flaws or if it's in the lack of training of its pilot and navigator. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding down through some of uh, the last couple of days' news. We'll lighten up in the second hour of today's program. Well, on Thursday, Senate Republicans joined their Democratic colleagues in voting to block the president's border emergency declaration, a move that uh, prompted the president's first-ever veto. The president made his intentions crystal clear, tweeting at the time, in all caps, veto, moments after the resolution cleared Congress. The White House said the president likely would issue the veto Friday, which we now know he did. Well, the measure passed 5941 as a dozen Republicans joined Democrats in voting for the resolution. Despite White House efforts to keep the GOP united in the uh, issue of border security, those GOP members uh, who backed the resolution cited concerns about the expansion of presidential powers. I'm going to um, to be voting in favor of the resolution of disapproval. That's a quote from Senator Mitt Romney. Uh, Speaking to reporters ahead of the vote, this is a constitutional question. It's a question of the balance of power that is core to our Constitution. This is not about the president or border security. In fact, I support border security. I support a barrier, he said. Well, the other Republicans who voted to oppose the declaration were Senators Mike Lee, Rob Portman, Susan Collins, uh, Lisa Murkowski, Marco Rubio, Rand Paul, Lamar Alexander, Roger Weicker, uh, Roy Blunt, Jerry Moran, and Pat Toomey, Senator Tom Tillis, Uh, has said that he would oppose the declaration but reversed course on the Senate floor, saying that he was sympathetic to the president's push to deal with the crisis at the border. Well, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, before the vote, said uh, he takes his hat off to Republicans voting with Democrats while accusing the president of going around Congress with the declaration. This is a momentous day, he said, declaring that the balance of power was shifting back to Congress. Now, again, this is always uh, somewhat humorous to me because... Uh, depending on which power, which party is in power, the uh, and which uh, party holds the White House, the wielding of the executive power is uh, held in different um, regard. The measure heads next to uh, headed rather next to the president's desk, having previously passed the House. The president uh, said he planned to veto it, and uh, he did just that. Well, the president uh, originally, and by the way, um, the House and the Senate could muster the required two-thirds majority to override, but that seems highly unlikely. The president uh, originally issued the emergency declaration last month after uh, Congress granted only a fraction of the $5.7 billion he requested for a wall on the southern border. Declaring a national emergency allows the president to steer an extra $3.6 billion to that wall. The run-up to the resolution vote was marked by last-minute efforts to avoid an intra-party confrontation, but those efforts fell through. Vice President Mike Pence, meanwhile, urged Republicans to support the national emergency declaration in an interview that aired on Thursday morning. A vote against the president's national emergency declaration is a vote to deny the humanitarian and security crisis that's happening at our southern border. So we're urging every member of the Senate uh, set uh, politics aside to recognize that we have a crisis, uh, he said at the time. Well, the president uh, shrugged off the impending vote when asked about it uh, by reporters in the Oval Office 
uh, earlier in the day. I don't know what the vote will be. It doesn't matter. I'll probably have to veto. Well, the president did just that today. The president today used his first veto of the administration to reject that bipartisan resolution that sought to block his uh, declaration on the national emergency at the border, a move almost certain to kill the measure. Today, I am vetoing this resolution. The president, surrounded by law enforcement officers, families of those killed by illegal immigrants uh, in the Oval Office, Congress has the freedom to pass this resolution and I have the duty to veto it, the president said. Well, his veto came a day after the 12 Senate Republicans joined the Democrats in voting despite last minute efforts. And while the original passage marked a uh, stinging rebuke from members of the president's own party, his veto is likely to last um, to be the last word as lawmakers are not likely to muster the two thirds majority required to override. Well, on Friday, the president called the resolution dangerous and said it would have revoked border operations put into place by the declaration. He also thanked Republicans who voted against the resolution. I have to, in particular, thank Republicans, strong Republican senators that were on our side and on the side of border security. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said that the veto was a sign that the president had chosen to trample all over the Constitution. Again, almost laughable. Uh, It's no surprise that the president holds the rule of law and our Constitution in minimal regard, he went on to say. Well, the president originally declared a national emergency on the border last month after Congress granted only a fraction of the funds he requested. Senate Democrats, who have consistently opposed many of the president's hardline immigration policies, were joined by Republicans who expressed support for the president's call for a wall, but cited concern about the expansion of presidential power, which, by the way, was granted to the executive in this emergency declaration uh, by uh, Congress some years ago. So the president has issued his first um, veto, and there's a date that's been set in the House to try to override that veto. I think there's something like 40 votes shy of uh, being able to do so, but they will be on the record as at least having made the effort, those who oppose the president's effort. Meanwhile, three-term former Representative Beto O'Rourke noted for his Bobby Kennedy resemblance, Jack uh, Kirk style of road trips, stream of consciousness ramblings, and the oh-so-close bid to topple Texas Senator Ted Cruz last year ended months of speculation by announcing a White House bid in a video he sent to supporters sometime in the wee hours of Thursday morning. This uh, dropping the same day, his Atlantic article with a glowing picture of he and his dog out in the country was also dropped. Amy and I are happy to share with you that I'm running to serve you as the next president of the United States of America, O'Rourke said. This is the defining moment of truth for this country and for every single one of us. The challenges we face right now, the interconnected crisis in our democracy and our climate, he said, have never been greater, end quote. Well, O'Rourke's announcement came hours after the publication of a fond article on the former congressman by Vanity Fair. I think I said Atlantic, but it was Vanity Fair. I want to be in it, the former Texas congressman told the magazine. Man, I'm just born to be in it and want to do everything I humanly can for this country at this moment. Probably not the best choice of words when uh, privilege has been uh, one of the issues um, plaguing those who seek uh, positions of authority and have come from it. I want to be in it, he said. Well, since the announcement, O'Rourke has picked up an early endorsement from New York uh, Representative Kathleen Rice. Republicans scoffed at his campaign launch um, with RNC spokesman Michael Ahrens saying in a statement, it's telling that the uh, Democrats' biggest star is someone whose biggest accomplishment is losing. Beto O'Rourke failed to get anything done in Congress, and with extreme politics like government-run health care and tearing down border barriers, 
His 2020 bid won't be a successful either. Well, the congressman uh, from El Paso grabbed national attention last summer and autumn as he challenged Republican uh, Ted Cruz in the 2018 midterm elections. O'Rourke raked in an eye-popping $80 million during the campaign, thanks in part for his uplifting message and his mastery of social media. He quickly became a Democratic rock star and, like Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, another darling of the party's progressive base. O'Rourke quickly reached celebrity status, being referenced only by his first name. O'Rourke narrowly lost to Ted Cruz by just about 200,000 votes out of more than 8 million cast after his uh, better-than-expected performance against the GOP incumbent. There were immediate calls uh, by some Democrats for O'Rourke to run for president after saying days after the November elections that I will not be a candidate for president in 2020. They all say that at some point. O'Rourke quickly changed his tune, explaining that I haven't made any decisions about anything yet, even though he was born to do it. By mid-December, he acknowledged at a town hall that he was, in fact, considering a White House run, and that announcement was made in earnest yesterday. Well, the Justice Department negotiated an agreement with Hillary Clinton's legal team that ensured the FBI did not have access to emails on her private server relating to the Clinton Foundation. Former FBI Special Agent Peter Strzok testified during a closed-door appearance before the House Judiciary Committee last summer. That's according to a newly released transcript. Why are we just now seeing it? Well, Republicans late last year renewed their effort to probe the Clinton Foundation after tax documents showed a plunge in its incoming donations after Clinton's 2016 presidential election. The numbers fueled longstanding allegations of possible pay-to-play transactions at the organization amid a Justice Department probe covering foundation issues that went nowhere. Under questioning from Judiciary Committee uh, General Counsel Zachary Somers, Strzok acknowledged that Clinton's private personal email server contained a mixture of emails related to the Clinton Foundation, her work as Secretary of State, and other matters. Were you given access to Clinton Foundation-related emails as part of the investigations? Uh, Summer asked. We were not. We did not have access, Stroke um, uh, responded. My recollection is that access to those emails were based on cons- uh, consent rather, that was negotiated between the Department of Justice attorneys and counsel for Clinton. And although the FBI eventually took possession of the servers, uh, Strzok um, continued, the possession was based upon the negotiation of the Department of Justice attorneys for consent. A significant filter team was employed at the FBI, Strzok said, to work through the various terms of the various consent agreements, limitations imposed on agent searches, included data ranges, the names of domains and people, Strzok said, among other categories. The agreement was reached, Strzok said, because according to the attorneys, we lacked probable cause to get the search warrant for these servers and projected that either it would take a very long time and or it would be impossible to get the uh, get to the point where we could obtain probable cause to get the warrant. Well, Strzok didn't elaborate on whether prosecutors made any effort to secure search warrants, which could have... have um, delineated precisely what agents could and could uh, not search for. But Strzok uh, later said that the agents had across uh, had access rather to the entire universe of information on the servers when using search terms to probe their contents. He also told Somers that uh, we had it uh, voluntarily, although it was unclear if uh, he meant the all of the emails on the server, including ones related to the Clinton Foundation. Well, this has certainly fed into the probe that is continuing and has been called for by the Republicans. 46 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the news from the last couple of days. Two leading House Republicans are ramping up pressure on House Oversight Chairman Elijah Cummings to refer the case of former Trump attorney Michael Cohen to the Justice Department because of allegations that he perjured himself during congressional testimony. Republican Ohio Representative Jim Jordan and North Carolina Representative Mark Meadows claimed in their letters that Cohen lied about six separate topics during sworn testimony before the House Oversight and Reform Committee on the 27th of February. Keep in mind that Cohen will be jailed in May for having... uh, Uh, offered false testimony to Congress previously. But they said Cohen lied when he claimed he did not want a position in the Trump administration and that he did not seek a pardon from his former boss. Several Trump associates came forward after Cohen's testimony to say that he, in fact, spoke often about working in the Trump White House. Some said that Cohen fumed when he ultimately was not hired. His attorney, Lanny Davis, also told reporters earlier in March that Cohen instructed his previous lawyer to broach the topic of a pardon with Trump's attorney. Trump's team dismissed the possibility of a pardon, according to The Wall Street Journal. This committee cannot stand idly by when a witness comes to a hearing, swears an oath to testify truthfully and provides material testimony that appears on its face to be demonstrably false. Jordan and Meadows wrote to Cummings. A Maryland Democrat. In light of mounting evidence, it appears Cohen likely lied under oath during his appearance before the committee. They added, noting that California Representative Katie Hill, a Democrat, said in an interview Sunday that she expected Cummings to refer the Cohen case to a rather for prosecution. Cohen, who was sentenced to three years in prison on, in December, claimed at his hearing that he had never asked for nor would accept a pardon from President Trump. Seems like a small matter from this perspective, but apparently a larger matter from theirs. In a letter to Cummings sent Monday, another Cohen attorney, Michael Monaco, said his client stands by his testimony, though he acknowledged that Cohen could have been clearer about the time frame of the pardon discussion. Monaco claimed that uh, Cohen was referring to his interactions with Trump's legal team after he had decided to exit a joint defense agreement he had with Trump lawyers. Monaco also said that at no time did uh, Cohen ask Trump for a pardon or did Trump offer one. Cohen pled guilty in the special counsel's investigation, as well as one being conducted by federal prosecutors in Manhattan. He admitted to tax evasion, bank fraud, making illegal campaign contributions and lying to Congress regarding efforts to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. And President Donald Trump's nominee to fill the vacancy on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit left by now, or rather left now by Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed by the Senate on Wednesday, 53 to 46. The vote to confirm Naomi Rao as the appellate judge was entirely along party lines. Uh, Rao 45 is an Indian American who previously served as the administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, an office within the Office of Management and Budget focused on regulatory review. She also formally taught structural constitutional law, administrative law and legislation and statutory interpretation at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University and is a former intern at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you, Leader McConnell, for standing up to Senate Democrats' bullying tactics and spearheading Naomi Rao's confirmation. Carrie Severino, chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network, said in a statement in response to that confirmation. Uh, Rao came under fire from uh, activists seeking to derail her nomination to the court by attacking pieces she wrote in college that criticized irresponsible drinking and calling a race a hot money-making issue, according to the Daily Signal. And Jonah Goldberg points out that there's something wrong when the diploma is worth more than the education. 
The college admissions scandal should be the populist issue of our time. Most of the talk in our political uh, or politics, rather, about how the system is rigged is incredibly abstract and symbolic. But this is infuriatingly concrete and clear. On Tuesday, the Justice Department revealed a massive effort by wealthy parents and a shady admissions consultant to bribe and cheat their way into getting kids into the slew of elite schools. Prosecutors say William Singer, the ringleader of the operation, sold two forms of services. For tens of thousands of dollars, parents could pay for their kids to have a a proctor correct their uh, incorrect answers as they took the SAT, or if that wouldn't do the trick, parents could pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to bribe coaches at elite schools to designate applicants as desired athletes, thus circumventing the minimum requirement for grades and test scores. In one case, a California family allegedly paid $1.2 million to Singer, who in turn allegedly paid Rudy Meredith, the woman's soccer coach at Yale, $400,000 to claim that the family's daughter was a coveted recruit, even though she didn't play at all. This scandal is a um, staggering indictment of higher education and American education policy generally. Virtually every constituency in American life has good reason to be rankled. Defenders of affirmative action for various minority groups are rightly livid about this effort, but mostly rich white people who already uh, have every advantage imaginable to game the system. Opponents of affirmative action who argue that merit alone should determine admissions have every reason to be outraged as well. For both groups and for everyone between the two extremes, the pressure to get kids into the best college possible and then figure out how to pay for it is a source of incredible anxiety. But the scandal goes beyond just these issues. It's also a searing indictment of the value of an elite college education in the first place and the ridiculous emphasis schools place on collegiate sports. None of these parents seemed remotely concerned about whether their kids could hack it once they got into their dream schools, and rightly so. George Mason economics professor Brian Kaplan in his book The Case Against Education makes a compelling case that most of the value in diplomas from elite colleges isn't the education they allegedly represent, but the cultural or social signaling they convey. Imagine you're depositing, uh, you deposited on a desert island, forced to fend for yourself. Would you rather have the knowledge that comes from taking a survival training course or just a piece of paper that says you took the course? Obviously, you'd rather know how to identify poisonous plants and sources of water than have a diploma that says you know how to do things you can't do. Now ask yourself, would you rather have the Yale education without the diploma or the diploma without the education? From an economic perspective, the piece of paper is vastly more valuable than the education, particularly in the humanities. And Kaplan runs through the numbers to demonstrate it. The paper opens doors and gets you callbacks from employers and entree into elite social circles, circles rather, where you know matters more than um, uh, uh, what you know. The education might make you a better person, but the parchment is the uh, ticket to opportunity. It's no guarantee of success, but it's a profound hedge against failure. Parents know this, and parents without special advantages, wealth, fame, connections, resent it. As a matter of public policy, the way we tell everyone they should go to college, even if it means incurring crushing debt, is a scandal. College isn't for everyone, and it isn't necessary for many careers or vocations, and shouldn't be necessary for many others. If there's a maxim that should serve as a golden rule for policymakers, it's this. Complexity is a subsidy. The more complex we make a system, the more it rewards people with the resources, social, cognitive, political, and financial, to navigate them. 
a system that rewards subjective priorities in the name of diversity, athletics, social justice, donations, preferences for legacy students, whatever, creates opportunities for bureaucrats, parents, and students to game the system. You're never going to create a system where some parents won't do anything and everything to help their kids. All you can do is create a system that makes it more difficult to cheat or exploit loopholes. That requires clear, simple rules that apply to everyone. Sadly, not the case here. Well, the Israeli military said early Friday the country has launched airstrikes on terror sites in Gaza hours after rockets were fired on Tel Aviv. We've just started striking terror sites in Gaza. Details uh, to follow the Israel uh, Israeli Defense Forces tweeted the attacks were happening in Khan Yunus, which is located roughly 15 miles south of Gaza City. According to the Associated Press, there were no immediate reports of injuries. Hamas uh, naval base was targeted, the outlet reported, citing Palestinian media. Shortly after their initial post, the military uh, sent out a rocket alert in the follow-up tweet saying that sirens were triggered um, in this regional council. Well, the response from Israel came after the IDF previously confirmed that two rockets were launched at Tel Aviv Thursday night from the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip. Israeli media immediately reported that one of the rockets was intercepted by the Iron Dome missile defense system. However, the IDF later said neither of the rockets was, adding that they landed in the sea or on open land. Meanwhile, the Israeli ambassador said it won't be quiet in Gaza if it's not quiet in Tel Aviv. It's five o'clock. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock, we're going to turn our attention to the lighter side of the news for the remainder of today's program. Well, yesterday, you may not have been aware, was Pi Day. Pi Day. Well, the Northern Ireland school broke a Guinness World Record when it gathered 1,170 people to form a gigantic pie symbol. And of course, I'm referring to P.I. rather than P.I.E. Well, the Lismore Comprehensive School in Craigoven um, said that 1,170 students and faculty members formed the mathematical symbol outside the school to break the Guinness World Record of 847 people set in Portugal last year. And this may be the thing that keeps the world together. The record attempt was planned in part as a, a tribute to Maddie Lee Harbinson, an 11-year-old student who died earlier in the year as a result of organ failure brought on by a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. The event raised awareness and funds for a charity. The school officials said they were submitting documentation for the event to Guinness for official recognition. So see, now they did a little Guinness Book of World Records thing. It actually had some benefit to all the people involved and remembering one who is no longer among them. And a Google employee smashed a Guinness World Record by calculating the value of pi to more than 31.4 trillion digits. Emma Hayuka Iwa. Iwa or something, whose accomplishment was certified by Guinness in time for a Pi Day. That was um, Thursday. Said she used 25 Google Cloud virtual machines to calculate Pi um, to 
well, I won't even say how many digits, smashing the previous record. Again, there were 31.4 trillion digits. Uh, she performed the calculation from Google's office in Osaka, Japan. It was the first time a Pi record was calculated using cloud technology. It was my childhood dream, a long-time dream, to break the world record for Pi, she said, speaking to CNN. She said she'd been using computer programs to calculate Pi since she was 12 years old. I couldn't even spell Pi, either one, when I was 12. Uh, she was assisted by Alexander Yee, who created a program called Y Cruncher for computing Pi and similar constants. She also credited another friend, a former professor and a former world record holder for Pi, for helping with the accomplishment. We keep investing in the cloud, and it gets even better over time, she says. Hopefully, we can do even bigger calculations in the future. Well, I'm happy for her, and I'm sure she's happy for herself, but I have no clue. Meanwhile, a New York teenager said he used plenty of math when he set the Guinness World Record for solving a Rubik's Cube with his feet. Daniel Rose Levine, 16, set the current record in March of 2018 when he used his feet to solve a Rubik's Cube in 16.96 seconds. Rose Levine, who had set the record four times, is participating in a discussion about the mathematics behind his Rubik's Cube skill during an appearance at the National Museum of Mathematics with a smile on his face and his face rather and his feet undressed. I started going to competitions for my hands, says Rose Levine, but there's 18 different events should be there are, not theirs, but anyway, I'm quoting. There's 18 events uh, that they have in these competitions, and one of them is feet. So I decided to start practicing feet just for the competitions, and eventually I got pretty good at it. And, uh, of course, uh, won this particular competition in 16.96 seconds, solving a Rubik's Cube. Meanwhile, the Washington State Senate passed a bill on Tuesday mandating the state observe daylight saving time year-round. That's signaling widespread support for the change across both chambers. The state uh, House passed another similar measure last week. It's now back in the committee with the um, Senate uh, in the Senate for discussion. Senate Bill 5139 was approved by a vote of 46 to 3 and now heads to the House for consideration. The two bills are similar with the exception of differing effective dates and referendum requirements. Under Senate Bill 5139, voters would need to approve the measure at the next general election. Well, a bill is being considered that would keep daylight saving time permanent in Oregon as well. And in fact, Oregon Governor Kate Brown endorsed the growing movement to make daylight saving time permanent. When asked if she was in favor of a proposal to abolish the yearly time shift, the Democrat told reporters, well, expletive, yes. Washington and California are also considering shifting to a permanent daylight saving time, Washington having nearly done it. Florida became the first state to approve such a change. Any state law extending daylight saving time would have to be approved by Congress. Governor Brown noted that this was one of the few issues where she agrees with President Trump, president tweeted earlier this week the daylight saving time year-round would be okay with him. So what would life be like without daylight saving time, or if you were always in daylight saving time? Well, that's why Congress ultimately has to approve mm-hmm. it, because then if the rest of the country isn't doing that, I think, what, New York at some times would be four hours, the East Coast would be four hours ahead of us? Yeah. Yeah, it just it gets a little wonky. Very wonky. I, we almost need to have complete buy-in from the country in order for the utter confusion to just not be a problem. So, and I don't know why we wouldn't, because it's been basically proven that we don't save any energy. None of the things that this was originally suited for, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't do what they had yeah. uh, 
said it was going to. But I it do is like a waking risk. up early, uh, with a light and leaving here in the light. Yeah. Um, what if we stayed on daylight saving time all year round? Now, these are some of the questions, of course, that people are asking. If we were on standard time the entire year, we would notice it, um, and I'm quoting now, we would notice it most during the summer months when we currently observe daylight saving time. During the longest day of the year, which would be June 21st, the sun would rise at 4.11 a.m. The sun would set at 8.10 p.m. I don't know about you, but I really enjoy the later sunsets during the summer months. So that, you know, you'd give up a little something. Now, what if we were on daylight saving time year round? Uh, we would experience those um, later sunsets in the summer, but you would uh, most... Notice the change during the winter months on the shortest day of the year, which is December 21st. The sun wouldn't rise until 8.54 a.m. That's almost uh, 9 a.m. sunrise. And the sun um, would set at about 5.20 p.m. So it's important to note, they tell us, uh, that we're not changing how much daylight there is in a day, just when we observe the daylight, when we're up, when we're in bed, so on. The winters will still be short and dark. Summers will always be... um, uh, longer in, in terms of daylight hours. We're just changing the time at which we experience them. So deciding when we want to experience daylight the longest and so on is a bit of a mashup. And apparently Oregon, Florida, Washington seem to be moving in that direction. There are health risks to doing what we are doing, though. To changing the time. Yeah. I mean, and not just health risks. There are health issues. It's a It's a problem. You know, more heart attacks, more... Uh, car accidents, everything around this time of year when we make that that switch because people you're messing with people's internal time clocks, circadian rhythms. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it matters in the winter if it. Yeah, of course the days are going to be shorter, but but they're going to be shorter anyway. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> but the matter. Light but, will be. And I can tell you mentally, it sure does help to not have it be dark at four four thirty in the afternoon. Yeah, I I guess I don't really care one way or the other. Just. Pick something, stick with it, and let's move forward. And that's, I guess that's Yeah, that. we're just going to do that now. <laughs> All right. Quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, where they tell us that so many bottles and cans from Washington, which has no deposit law, are being brought into Oregon with its 10-cent refund, that a proposed bill limits the number that can be redeemed per day. Senate Bill 522 defines potential violators trying to redeem the dime per container as the person who knows or has good reason to know were not sold in this state. Well, it's sponsored by a Scapoose Democrat, uh, Senator Betsy Johnson. It limits the containers returned every day to 25 per person. Violators face a potential $250 Uh, fine under that bill. The public hearing has been scheduled for Thursday before the Senate Committee on Environment and Natural Resources. Now, I can't imagine our Washington neighbors are bringing their bottles and cans across the river to redeem them, and they wouldn't do that. Right, Clark? Huh, who would have thought? Well, a Bavarian town that accidentally ordered a 12-year supply of toilet paper is officially wiped out. The mayor of... um, Fustal, a small German town of around 4,000 people near Munich, says the last roll has now been used up. The toilet roll uh, uh, tale started in 2006 when a council employee mistakenly ordered two massive truckloads of the paper product. Storage was the major issue. When the first vehicle rolled into town, authorities realized their mistake and were able to successfully cancel the second truck. However, they're still stuck with, um, well, 
roll upon roll in the first truck. Trying to stash that much toilet paper was another headache. The mayor um, told the local media that he assembled a four-person team to find places to tuck the toilet paper around town. In primary schools, secondary schools, town hall, toilet paper was hidden in storage rooms everywhere, he said. So just how much paper was there? Well, not as much as one might think. Part of the reason why it took the town more than a decade to use all the toilet paper up is because the condition of the paper itself. Residents complained the gray-colored one-ply was too, well, flimsy, turned brittle and yellow under the exposure of the sunlight. Some workers refused outright to use it and opted to bring their own, well, from home. Uh, the silver-gray lining in the fiasco was that the uh, botched order saved the, the uh, city money because the price of wood rose the following year. Uh, we were able to save over $1,100 because the price of wood went up next year, which also made toilet paper more expensive. So a 12-year supply lasted 10 years, and they saved money in the process. Wow. Well, the University of California, Los Angeles, Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center erected a giant inflatable colon section on a corner in the Westwood neighborhood as part of the Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Well, the inflatable model included massive models of polyps and cancer cells. There was definitely a icky factor, says uh, one of the UCLA health specialists. People don't like talking about, well, that part of the body. Uh, but the problem is people are dying from the disease. Over 50,000 Americans every year. 40% of people in the United States don't get colonoscopies and the procedures are recommended for anyone over 45. We're seeing an uptick in the number of people under 45 getting colon cancer, she said. So the large inflatable colon through which people were encouraged to walk and observe remained in place for some time. What a tourist trap. Yeah. Let's go look at those polyps. <laughs> Get a selfie with the colon. Yeah, there you go. A creepy new AI system could identify shoplifters before they actually steal based on their body language. Now, when I first read this uh, this article, I remember going to a store and being aware of how I was conducting myself. And I thought this AI would peg me as a shoplifter because I was nervous thinking about it. And it's like minority report. Yeah, exactly. Well, a Japanese startup uh, has developed software, which it is already marketing to a range of retail clients, that analyzes footage from security cameras to spot fidgeting, restlessness, and other body language cues that could be suspicious. According to Bloomberg Quint, the minority port style technology, as you just mentioned, uses algorithms to analyze the footage and then alerts retail staffers about potential thieves via an app with the overall goal of preventing theft. I don't like this at all. I already, I'm telling you, as a middle-aged woman, I can go into certain stores, and I have a friend that I work with here who went in with me uh, once, the two of us, and she was shocked at how I was treated at the time. I wasn't fidgety or anything. I just walked in the store, and this it was... Hmm. So shopping while black in some places is already, <laughs> you, know, you know, an alarm for some places, but... Uh, this new technology is supposed to be able to identify who's going to do what before they actually do it. And I guess the goal is you uh, see that they look fidgety or they fit the profile and then you follow them around the store. I've been followed around stores all over the Portland metro area for about 40 years. So this doesn't creep me out. It just makes me mad. Well, nurses at a Naples hospital, they've been accused of releasing cockroaches onto the ward to... Uh, <laughs> to get the thing closed. 
we wanted to leave early, do you think released cockroaches would do it? Clark? Sure. Let's try that out. <laughs> or stink bugs. Let's That's what, what we happens. have around here. Nurses at a hospital in Naples um, may have done just that. Uh, to get the thing closed, according to police, media in the southern Italian city have reported detectives suspect the insects were introduced to the accident and emergency ward of the hospital uh, by staff who wanted to be transferred to less demanding jobs. A patient filmed some of the bugs and put the video on social media. The hospital director said that it was extraordinarily grave. Nurses and trade unionists appear to have sabotaged the area in order to obtain a transfer to uh, other places in the hospital. It's believed the bugs were brought in uh, in a bag containing sawdust and uh, a sheet. Authorities' suspicions were raised when an expert found the cockroaches were not local, but from Central and South America. I mean, if you're going to release cockroaches, at least, you know, release local cockroaches, not foreign cockroaches that can be identified as having come from Argentina and Brazil. Uh, that accounted for the fact that some of the infects, insects rather appeared to be disoriented when they were found, while others were so um, were on their backs as if they'd been scattered. Uh, such creatures are normally um, used to... Uh, Feeding uh, readily available both on the Internet and special uh, specialty shops dealing with exotic animals and so on. So you can actually order cockroaches uh, if you want to. I can't imagine a reason to do so, but there you go. Well, apparently there are two types of people in the world. As for how this is decided, it all has to do with toilet rolls. By now, you will have come across the age-old question, should the toilet roll hang over or under? Maybe the question has caused conflict in your own household. Perhaps you've ended a relationship or even disinherited a family member based on the answer to this question, this orientation. It did seem as if there was no answer in sight, but some good news just in, there is an actual answer. Choice Magazine discovered a 128-year-old patent dating back to the 15th of September 1891. It helpfully included a detailed graph, which it was explicit in showing the proper use of paper, paper being left up and over the roll rather than hanging under. Well, according to uh, the magazine, they wrote here at choice, we're fearless in finding truth in the most complex consumer concerns, which is why we set out to provide a conclusive answer to the controversial question of whether to hang your toilet paper over or under the role. So at risk of permanently losing members, we're here to announce that over is the correct way to hang toilet paper. Now, those of us who do it that way, we've known it all along. The number of responses to the bombshell revelation are testament to how heated this debate has become. Over, under makes me uncomfortable, wrote one reader. Over, because I'm not a monster, agreed someone else. But over in camp under, someone else said, under all the way, it gives you better, quicker, and easier one-hand control of the number of sheets used. So now you know the definitive answer, but it doesn't necessarily settle the issue. There is a correct way to do it, but it may not be the preferable way. I feel better. I don't know about you. A uh, blockbuster store in Bend, Oregon, is now the world's last outpost of the once-booming video rental chain, Um. Later this month, when the store in Perth, Australia, closed its doors. Located in Perth, a suburb or suburb rather of Morley, Australia's last blockbuster store, uh, began going out of business on um, the 8th of March when they had a big sale. Um, 
They close for good at the end or will close at the end of the month, the Australian Associated Press reported. The blockbuster in Bend became the last U.S. location of the bankrupt chain with the closure of two stores in Alaska last summer. Now it will be the last blockbuster store in existence on Earth. Sandy Harding, general manager of that store in Bend, said, I had no idea, she told a local newspaper. Uh, I wondered which one of us was going to hold out the longest, and apparently Bend is the answer to that question. A free gift worth $100 made by you. Take home a, up to seven um, videos, kind of a contest they're holding in this whole thing. Well, a dominant brand during the uh, late 80s, 90s, Blockbuster, Blockbuster rather, once had more than 9,000 stores in operation. I can remember going and wandering through trying to figure out what to watch. The chain shut down its last corporate-owned stores in 2014, but some franchises remained operational in the years since. Obviously, the rise of Netflix, which uh, instantly streams movies and television and other uh, streaming services as well, have made it, um, well, obsolete. Other competitors in the burgeoning space include Hulu, Amazon, Prime Video, and so on. Harding told the Bulletin that her blockbuster store is still a solid business, has become a tourist attraction, drawing visitors from all around the world. We probably open up 10 accounts a day, Harding told the newspaper. It's crazy the amount of people, or rather the number of people, that come in and want a Blockbuster card. Well, it's kind of a novelty now. Uh, go get a selfie with that giant colon and then drive on over to <laughs> Blockbuster and Bend for a selfie in front of the last store ever. There you go. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, apparently people are meeting one another these days more frequently online. Tinder is a dating service that allegedly um, brings people together. Well, one Tinder date um, sent a woman a list of improvements after her first date, just so I'm not embarrassed to be seen with you. Her previous date said, well, it seems like the bad date just kept on giving. Kimberly of Lancashire, England, went on to uh, on a disastrous date with a man she met on Tinder in December. Three months later, the suitor allegedly sent her a very lengthy set of improvements for her to make before her next meeting, or at least their next meeting. Now, he assumes that this list will lead to a next meeting. Well, on Facebook, the 24-year-old posted the surprising list where... Uh, It has gone viral um, with over 24,000 shares and 15,000 reactions. Hello, Kimberly. I know we went on a date quite a while ago now, but I'd like to explain why I haven't messaged you. The message allegedly from Luke James states, I feel like you could have made the date much better. Here are a few reasons why. I apologize if I offend you. Well, the pages of text continue with a 15-bullet-point list mapping out each way James allegedly feels um, his date could improve herself, among them being self-tanner, lip filler, hair extensions, and being more confident. Now, this is before their next date, he assumes. The fact that you take things slow makes you look like a prude. I didn't get a kiss which messed with my ego, he says. Be more sensitive to others' feelings. One of the complaints on the list read the man had a problem with uh, her choice of conversation as well, stating you need to keep your past to a minimum. I don't care about it and what you went through. James was seemingly incensed uh, that she offered to pay even after he told her how much it uh, 
how much he had in his bank account, also had an issue with what she ordered, claiming she needed to lose weight as well. When we had food, I know you got a salad, but having full fat Coke is more calories uh, you really don't need, he wrote in the text. The list concluded with an option for another date if she made the requirement required changes. I will give you a month and get back in touch with you uh, to see if this has made a difference, he wrote in the alleged message. Well, those on social media were unsurprisingly not on board with the man's uh, attitude, if in fact it was uh, a true exchange. And he and slammed the supposed series of texts as rude. How rude can someone be? One wrote. What an absolute narcissist, wrote another. Um, and it went on from there. At first, I was absolutely mortified and it killed my confidence. But the more I read it, the funnier it became, she says. I couldn't understand how a guy could say such things to a woman. Well, though initially hurt, she says she wasn't surprised by the response, telling uh, the uh, readers of her post that on their first date, he asked her if she would get plastic surgery and suggested places she might go for wardrobe help next time around. Wow. I'm surprised that the date didn't end right then. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, if this whole thing isn't a hoax, she seems to suggest that it was not. But my guess is there's not going to be a follow-up. I hope not. Well, you've planned your wedding, said your vows, schmoozed with relatives. Now comes the best part, the vacation. Except that the latest trend in honeymooning isn't honeymooning at all. It's solo mooning. Yep, some newlyweds are taking their own post-wedding trips alone, also called unimooning. Solo mooning has even gotten coverage in the New York Times, which doesn't mean a lot to me. But we've got to say it's kind of strange. Isn't going on a big trip together part of the fun? Where else would you talk about what happened at your reception and during the wedding and the life ahead? Well, in fairness, you can't think of a few situations where a solo moon might make sense. Uh, Can't decide on Greece or Hawaii. Can't take uh, off work at the same time. Future husband is a chronic snorer. But according to um, the institute that researched all of this, it might be a bad idea. They told the Times when couples take vacations together, they can trigger all three brain systems, romantic love, feelings of deep attachment. But psychologist Lisa Marie Bobby also says, speaking to the Times, that individualization is a sign of a healthy relationship. Plus, we know people who got married a year ago and still haven't planned their honeymoon. Cough, cough, so on. So to honeymoon or solo moon? Why would you even bother to take a trip if you weren't? Doing it together, it is bizarre, but apparently it's a trend. Now these days, they they can have five people who do a thing and call it a trend. So you don't really know how this is a trend I've never heard of. Yeah, how widespread it is, but nonetheless, it was in the Times. So there you have it. It must be uh, important. Well, two men have been found clutching to a tree above a crocodile-infested river, hallucinating, covered head to toe with mosquitoes and midge bites after their boat partially sank in the Kakudu National Park. But their boss chartered a helicopter to help find them. Uh, They were stuck in this tree over crocodile-infested waters. When these two employees didn't show up for work after a fishing trip, a quick-thinking territory boss chartered a helicopter to search for them. Those actions likely saved the lives of the two men in their 20s, who had spent two days clinging to the branches of the tree over the uh, South Alligator River, where the chopper uh, found them. The pair had been fishing when their boat partially sank, forcing them to climb into trees. 
Um, They were able to signal the passing helicopter using a fire extinguisher. Uh, They alerted Care Flight, who were able to then get a rescue operation underway to find them. A spokesperson for Care Flight said that the fire extinguisher was the only thing the men were able to grab from the boat before it became inundated with water. They started shooting it into the air on the third time the helicopter spotted it and uh, were able to, um, to locate them. What might seem like a strange thing to grab saved their lives. Our air crew officer said it was a genius idea to let off uh, so much chemical smoke. Well, Rangers and friends helped the the men rather to a car park near the South Alligator boat ramp where they were collected by the care flight team. Unfortunately, when we arrived, they were suffering from extreme dehydration. They had been having hallucinations. So our doctor essentially provided some treatment to rehydrate them. Uh, They were covered head to toe, as I mentioned, with midge and mosquito bites. I don't know what a midge is in particular, but does not sound pleasant. And you can imagine from being stuck in a tree on the south uh, alligator, the name of the the river, it was not pleasant. The men were airlifted to the Royal Darwin Hospital in stable condition. But uh, we'll plan a bit differently next time they decide to go on a fishing trip. But it was their employer who sent out um, help looking for them. Well, in, uh, it is in accord with the larger rights of nature movement and philosophy, which over the past decade has resulted in Ecuador's 2008 constitutional acknowledgement of the rights of Mother Nature, that Toledo residents have now voted to give rights to Lake Erie. I don't know how Lake Erie exercises those rights, but uh, the Indiana court ruled in 2017 that the Ganges, the uh, Yamuna rivers have rights to exist, thrive and evolve a new release states which was issued by the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, a nonprofit that helped draft the amendment. Uh, and now there, is, um, there are rights extended to Lake Erie. So make sure you conduct yourself accordingly if you're in the area. And a man put three tortoises in a pastry box and almost got away with smuggling them through customs at the Schoenenfeld Airport in Berlin earlier this month. Officials noticed something suspicious about the three pastries inside a 69-year-old man's dessert box. The 69-year-old debarked the plane from Cairo, uh, tried to pass through the nothing-to-declare line at customs, but officers stopped the man and searched his belongings, according to the local, which is the paper. In a suitcase, they found a dessert box and noticed something suspicious about the three pastries inside. They were an unusual shape with strange markings. When officials asked the man what was inside the box, he said, oh, it was chocolate. Well, the man is said to have um, claimed the animals uh, were, in fact, pastries and therefore did not need to be declared. Well, according to the press release, instead of sweets, officers found three living Moroccan tortoises inside the packaging. The animals were confiscated and placed under the protection of the border veterinarian. The Moroccan tortoise is a species protected by the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Breaking international species protection laws is punishable by a fine of $56,000 or a jail sentence of up to five years or maybe both. Pastries. Almost got away with it. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to our final segment of the Georgine Rice Show on this Friday afternoon. It seems that we are approaching spring in earnest, not just because it says so on the calendar, but because uh, the weather seems to be changing. And we learned that the Oregon snowpack 
has made a remarkable recovery, and that's improved the state's water supply. So this inclement weather we enjoyed, in quotes, uh, most recently has uh, benefited us. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Natural Resource Conservation Service said that snowpack and stream flow forecasts lean toward an adequate water supply situation for many areas of the state. You might recall how hot and dry it was last summer, and this uh, forecast is as of March the 1st. The coming weeks and months will determine the state's spring and summer water supply outlook, however. Well, the agency said several storm systems and unseasonably cold temperatures that lasted for most of February replenished an early-season snowpack deficit. Seven of the state's long-term snow monitoring sites, for example, broke March snow uh, snowpack records, and more than 30% of those sites had their highest February snow accumulations on record. Snowpack throughout the state now sits above normal in nearly all areas, though the snowpack in the Hood, Sandy, and low, uh, Lower Deschutes uh, around Mount Hood are slightly below average. Unseasonably cold temperatures, ample moisture in February were welcome signs of improvement in Oregon's water supply and drought situation. That's a quote from the Snow Survey Supervisory Hydrologist Scott Oviet. Um, a wet February didn't completely wipe out drought concerns, however. Nearly 64% of the state is in moderate to severe drought, according to the most recent U.S. Drought Monitor data available. The Natural Resources Conservation Service said spring and summer stream flow is expected to range from near normal to well above normal in most Oregon basins. Stream flow forecasts for parts of the Deschutes River Basin and uh, Mount Hood region hovered about 5 to 20 percent below normal as of the first of the month. The weather over the next few months will greatly affect the summer water supply story for this year, but the current trajectory is looking positive for the state's streams and rivers, the agency said in its uh, forecast, again, that was released on the 1st of March. So that's good water news. And if you were frustrated uh, at suffering through the uh, cold, inclement, and sometimes snowy weather, well, it did benefit the state, and that will benefit us through this uh, summer, it appears. So we'll see what happens next. Taking a look at um, what's coming up next week on the program on Monday, I'm looking forward to talking with Dr. John Schneider. He is the executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. Now, Pastor um, uh, John Schneider has been a pastor. He currently ministers to and pastors seniors. And this is a significant work. And I'm looking forward to talking with him once again about that work and the need for those who have a heart to minister to um seniors among us. On Tuesday, we'll talk with Nate Pyle. He's the author of More Than You Can Handle, When Life's Overwhelming Pain Meets God's Overcoming Grace. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Lorraine Varela, Planned from the Start, Joy, Forgiveness, Grace, Comfort, Hope. And this is connected with the um, the movie that's recent uh, recently come out. Uh, and so we're going to talk with... Um, talk with her about not only the book, but the movie that's associated with it, Planned from the Start. Uh, And that's coming up on Wednesday. Uh, We're working on some things on Thursday, and then on Friday we'll uh, we'll lighten up, assuming it's not uh, such a heavy news day as we've seen today and uh, yesterday. I want to thank those of you who participated in the uh, Radiothon yesterday. We fell just slightly short of our goal, but many, many children as a consequence of your generosity, we'll have the opportunity to be freed from the uh, oppression of being in, infested with parasites. And while it's a very unpleasant subject to talk about, it's even worse to actually live with. So these kids are going to be freed from that and want to say thank you for your generosity in that regard. Also, I want to remind you that if you are looking for a podcast, The Best Day Ever, that features uh, women here on KPDQ and The Fish, 
Uh, that uh, podcast is released twice a month. You can go to kpdq.com to find out more about it. And I would hope you do that and let us know what you think. It's a, a relatively new effort. We just began this last month and we'll be uh, releasing new content twice a month. Also, if you are a Southern Gospel fan, we want to remind you that uh, coming to Salem is the uh, Southern Gospel Live. And uh, tickets are currently available at kpdq.com or all the important details on how to purchase, where it's going to be, and so on. This is part of a cluster of events. We've got Fish Fest. We have Reventone. Uh, these are events associated with our sister stations. And now the Gospel Sing that celebrates some 50 years of uh, Gospel Sing here in the Portland uh, area on KPDQ. So we're excited about the prospect of uh, hosting uh, this event. In fact, I think it's the first time we've done anything quite like this to celebrate gospel sing. So we're looking forward to that coming up in August. Uh, Finally, want to remind you that if you have been thinking about Christian education for the young people in your family, in your life, this is a great opportunity to take advantage of some significant savings. In fact, we have savings of up to 40% off tuition And uh, if you've done the math, you know that can be uh, rather dramatic savings if you're sending a child through uh, Christian education for a year. And you can find out more at listenersavings.com, listenersavings.com. All the uh, details are there, Uh, the list of schools that are participating, and it's a rather lengthy list, how many tuitions are available, what the specific prices are. There are links to each one of those Uh, Christian schools so that you can learn more about where they're located, the the emphasis in their programs and so on. So that can be found at um, listenersavings.org. And uh, we would hope that you take advantage of these discounts of up to 40%. Well, once again, on Monday, we're going to talk with Dr. John Schneider, Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries. Uh, and uh, look forward to uh, bringing you up to date on the the uh, news of the uh, of the weekend. We're hoping to have more information about the black boxes that were recovered in uh, the recent uh, airline crash. We're also hoping to have additional information about the uh, terror strike in New Zealand at the mosque that uh, killed 49, and that number is expected, we're told, uh, to climb. So we can certainly be in prayer for those who are directly impacted there. I want to thank um, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blend is, well, he's off somewhere enjoying time with his family. Go figure. He would rather spend time with his family than us. And I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here on Monday. In the meantime, enjoy the sunshine. I understand it's going to be very warm and comfortable. And we'll be back here on Monday right about 4 o'clock. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.